the madness, the manic madness of middle-class monotony, mung to you by Mavid Mern. of Lyrics for Lunch, the podcast where we are the talking heads who tell you about the secret histories behind your favorite songs. My name's Aviv. I am a filmmaker, director, writer, and podcaster, and musician. And joining me, as always, the uh, Tina Weymouth to my David Byrne. Woohoo, Tina! It is I, Lindsay Tucker, journalist, former music writer, and general badass. And bassist of the top. Badass Club. on the bass. Yeah. Badass on the bass. That's me. So, Hi. Aviv, yes. what are we talking about today? Uh, my week was great. Thank you for asking. I already have, I feel like I've already gotten the play by play as the week went by, and now we're here. We're I doing this. Like the listeners want to know. All right. All right. Tell us about your week. It was great. Thank you. How was your week? Okay. Really? That's all they wanted to know? Yeah. I went to a wedding in Seattle. It was great. Okay, how was the baseball game? Fine. Who won? The Mariners. Were there any fights? There were no fights. Okay. Mariners v. Athletics. It was versus Oakland, right? Yes, the, o- the Oakland Athletics. Oh, that's what, that's what athletics means. Mm-hmm. You know, I just usually call them the A's. Well, I'm a little bit more formal than you are. <laughs> I'm Excellent. Wearing, I'm wearing a shirt with buttons today. You are. It's how was very your weird week, for Lindsay? me. Uh, my week was pretty good. I got a new job. Hey. Um, and so I also worked on this podcast for what f- felt like eight days, but there hasn't been that many days since we recorded the last one. No, so I'm in fact, confused. there hasn't. Well, this is day eight. Actually, there has. Yeah. It was eight days. Right. Well, there we go. Here we go. What are we talking about today? What have I been working on for the past eight days? Well, I, f- I didn't realize this was, this was part of my job. T- today, we are talking about the band. The Talking Heads. I'm going to kill you. And the song, Once in a Lifetime. The band is Talking Heads. We've had this discussion at least eight times over the past four years. Not sure why you can't grasp it. So I am a big fan of the Talking Heads. Uh, Oh, my God. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. Of the band, the Talking Heads. I've seen Stop Making Sense like two dozen times. It's amazing. Love them. Love David Byrne. <laughs> the end. Great. Great, great, great. Unlike, unlike most of the songs that Lindsay delves into, I have a, like an intimate knowledge with, of this song. I can't wait. I'm, I'm excited. Um, I'll tell you a little bit, and then you tell me. About what? Once in a Lifetime. Okay, great. Once in a Lifetime is from Talking Heads' fourth studio album, Remain in Light which was released on October 8th, 1980 from Sire Records. Mm-hmm. Do you re- recognize Sire Records do, from anything? Do I, do I remember Sire Records from anything? Uh, no, not at all. The Madonna episode. Oh, Madonna and the, the Talking Heads are on the same <laughs> record label? Uh, Madonna and Talking Heads both had records with Sire Records. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This album only saw modest sales, and it would end up being the group's last with producer Brian Eno. 
which is interesting because David Byrd and Brian Eno um, would continue to work together into the 2000s. Yes. Yeah. Okay, so according to NPR, it featured one of the first computer-designed record jackets. Oh. Do you remember what it looked like? I'm looking at it right now. Because it's in your email? Because it's in my email. <laughs> so the, the, the talking heads always have interesting record covers. Um, the Remain in Light one is the four members of the band with, like, red splotches over their face the the cover that i really 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 remember from them is i think it's the it's either greatest hits or the stop making sense studio versions and it is like the computer generated faces that cops used to use for like mug shots and stuff um i have that one that you're talking about which is just the name of this band is talking heads right notice the no the there's a the in the beginning a what it's the first word of the record now with the record title. And is that the name of the Bendis Talking Heads cover? Now I have to verify. Now I'm okay. Googling. Uh, we're off to a great start. That is the cover of the best of Talking Heads. Remain in the light. Included nope, it's the songs. Remain in light. There's no the. <laughs> the the police over here. Listen. Uh, I, I cannot believe that so early in the recording you gave me the opportunity to do that to you. Well, I'm good at my job. Drop the the. It's cleaner. <laughs> Just talking heads. <laughs> Facebook. Okay, so Remain in Light included some pretty great songs. These were some of my favorites. Born Under Punches, Cross-Eyed and Painless, Cross -eyed and painless The Great, great. Curve, and of course... Once in a lifetime. Once in the lifetime. <laughs> what do you remember about this song? Um, I remember how did I get here? Mm -hmm. I think I I think I actually remember the first time I ever heard this song. Ooh, tell. Uh, I grew up in Pennsylvania and was listening to classic rock radio station WMMR and Either, it was either MMR or Y100, which is no longer exists. And I had just, it was in 2004, and it was around the time that Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind came out. And the DJ was alleging that Joel Barish, Jim Carrey's character from Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, quotes the, this song in the movie. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. I am interested in seeing this movie, or maybe I'd already seen it. And he just wakes up and says, how did I get here? Um, and so it was like kind of like a he was the DJ was doing a bit, but he played this song. And I was like, this is a great song. And so I likely had heard it before 2004 because I was all. I know I'm, my brain was about to explode. I was like, what would this? Yeah, I was already up? like 17, 18. Okay. But the I, th I think more likely it was the first time I had like really stopped to notice right this song and commit it to memory yeah i also remember the kermit the frog cover of this song we're gonna get there i was hoping you hadn't seen it though oh i've seen it it's gonna be my big reveal and at the end and kermit wears the big suit but the big suit is not from this it's from girlfriend is better yes all true things um I told you right. I intimate knowledge of the 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 the, the talking heads except you don't know the name of the band the name of the band is The Talking Heads. That's the record, that's the record <laughs> cover that you were telling me about. Okay. 
anything else anything else once in a lifetime related you want to get off your chest same as it ever was uh i i just very clearly remember watching stop making sense and him doing the like little robot dance to same as it ever was to the same as it ever was part and i have stole i've I've stolen a version of that for a song that i sing with my band where i repeat the same word over and over again and smack myself in the face as though i am a skipping record if that job's ever available, I volunteer as tribute. Sure. To just get smacked in the face? No, to just smack you in the face. Oh, deal. Okay, so Once in a Lifetime was not an instant hit. Sure. It didn't top the charts. Its popularity is really more of like a long tail story. I would love to hear this long tail story. Oh, we're going to do it. T-A-I-L, in- not T-A-L-E, or both? Both. Oh, great. Long tail tail. Double entendre. Is that a double entendre? Same as it ever was. <laughs> in 2000, NPR named Once in a Lifetime to the NPR 100, which is their list of the most important pieces of American music of the 20th century. So the song this, between 1980 and 2000 was like kind of a sleeper. And then for, for what reason did NPR name it this one of the best pieces of American music? Well, we're going to get there. Oh, okay. I thought, I, the, I thought I, the story was starting in 2000. No, 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 no. Um, okay. The story is, is going to get there. Oh, I see. So we're going to, so, so th- in this story, we're going to go from the release of the song to it being named one of the best pieces of Americana in the year 2000. And beyond. And beyond. <laughs> um, when it first came out, according to Song Facts, it stalled on the charts at number 103 by February of 1981. Okay. And then a paltry one, 153, 103. Oh, 103. Oh, it's much better then. <laughs> Does the number 103 remind you of anything? No. Room okay. 103, which is one fewer than that room in the HBO show. Room no. 104. No, it reminds me of high school wrestling. It's the first weight class. <laughs> Excuse me. Wait a minute. Wait. Okay. Sorry to get on a tangent so early, <laughs> but f- fucking what? Wasn't hi- like high school wrestling wasn't a big thing for you in Pennsylvania? Uh-uh. I actually promised, uh, I, have, I have a couple funny stories about that, which is that um, I, was, I was betrothed to the wrestling team by my seventh grade social studies teacher, Mr. Schneider. How you doing? Ed, my, my friend Justin joined because I thought I was going to join and then I just never did. And, um, you're such a dick. Well, I didn't want to do it. Um, and the (laughs) first time I ever went to good friend Matt Reuter's house, also in like seventh or eighth grade, he was also on the the wrestling team, friend of the show, um, who I host another podcast with. The first time I went over to his house and met his father who just recently passed away, he saw me leaving. Matt was already on the wrestling team. He saw me leaving and he was like, Jesus, Matt, you said you needed a heavyweight on the team. You got one right here. And I fell over onto the stairs laughing so hard and crying on the inside. <laughs> so it's 103 to heavyweight. So you're going to be heavyweight? I was going to, yes, I was going to be heavyweight. Was, so there his, was like a cheer that we used to have. It was like, 103 to heavyweight or something uh-huh were you a wrestling cheerleader is that what i'm picking up no comment what wrestling was the, like the varsity sport because, find us on uh, instagram at lyrics for lunch <laughs> to see pictures of Lindsay in high school as a wrestling cheerleader 
wrestling was the the good you the don't good have to justify it no but i do <laughs> Wrestling was the go-to sport in your high school, and so you just had to become a cheerleader for it? No, I became a cheerleader because of all sorts of fucked up messaging from society that I was fed since birth. Okay, fair. I became a wrestling cheerleader because actually freshman year, I only made basketball varsity cheerleading, which is like not really varsity because basketball cheerleading sucks, sucked, and like the real varsity was wrestling. Okay. (laughs) That's it. Moving on. What part of the pyramid were you? The top. Were you a flyer? Yes. (gasps) Yes. <gasps> Bet how, you high, sh- how high did you go? Never mind. You have no idea how high I can soar. Mm, it's true. Okay. This is wonderful. Isn't it? Okay. Well, this takes care of like the personal, the per- like there's always like the personal aspect of, of Lindsay, Lindsay Tucker history with the songs. And so we've checked that box. This has nothing to do with the song. Well, okay. I don't even know how did we get here? <laughs> All right, so we have the song fizzling out. Uh, oh yeah, one oh three by February of nineteen eighty one. Yeah, it went to but heavyweight. but do you know what happened in August first of nineteen eighty one? August first, nineteen eighty one. Reagan's in the White House. What happened in August first, nineteen eighty one? MTV start. MTV started. Yeah. Is that MTV launched? Sure. Okay. And with a limited number of videos to choose from. Once right. in a lifetime, saw a fair amount of airplay. And so the video, I think I remember the video, maybe? Well, that's next up in your email for us to watch. All right, let's, let's watch the video. I'll, I will let you know whether I was right or not. Yeah, so this is what I was thinking. It's like kind of the Max Headroom deal. Kind of looks like Bill Nye the Science Guy. <laughs> he doesn't not look like Bill Nye. Oh, he's doing the multi-meal walk. The what? The multi-meal walk. I don't know what that is. It looks like Kirk from Gilmore Girls. I don't. All I of don't, this dancing looks like Kirk. I don't know what that is. Um, <laughs> so there was a commercial when when we were kids for Malto Meal brand cereal, and they were on the bottom shelf. And so the spokesperson did that funny little duck walk because, like, that's how you have to walk to find the Malta Meal. And he's like, this is, this is a fun thing you do to find our product. It was, like, the knockoff brand? Yeah, yeah. They came in bags. <laughs> Same as it ever was. I'm so sweaty. It's weird that we allowed this to happen. That this was like a hit. So that that we allowed music like this to be popular. Why? Because it's like so unabashedly weird. Like we don't we don't like weirdness in our pop music anymore. We don't. No. What is like the weirdest artist that you can think of that's popular now? Like who would do the, these like weird twitchy 
sweaty things. Lord. Lord? Have you ever seen Lord dancing to Greenlight on SNL? No. Also, the interesting thing, one of the interesting things about this is they are not even pretending like there's anyone else in the band. Right? It's this is this is the David Byrne project. Yeah, so I don't think the band appeared in any of the videos until 1984. Wow. Yeah, the only I actually was thinking about this just now is I think Sia is more weird and like unabashedly weird and like maybe older Lady Gaga. She's kind of normal now. Uh, the dancing was weird, but I felt like it wasn't really an earth-shattering video. It was kind of boring, a little repetitive. Sure. I I, I don't think it's... I think it's more earth-shattering these days than it was back then. Mm, mm-hmm. So speaking of the dancing, Burns' choreography in the video was done by Tony Basil. Sure. Who had a hit as a singer with Mickey. Yeah. I was about to say, oh, Mickey, you're so fine. Oh, that Mickey? Yeah. Great song. Also dressed as a cheerleader. Amazing. Coming full circle. (laughs) This is from Songfacts. It was a very odd video, and for many viewers, it was the first look they got at Talking Heads, or at least Burn. The full band didn't appear in a video until Burning Down the House two years later. Okay, so 82, 83. Yeah, my bad. That's okay. How dare you? This is also from Songfacts. As you watch Burn spasm like a malfunctioning robot interspersed, Gesturing in Martian Sign Language, ponder this excerpt from the book, MTV Ruled the World, The Early Years of Music Video, in which Tony Basil fills in some details about the choreography for the video. Byrne wanted to research movement, but he wanted to research movement more as an actor, as does David Bowie, as does Mick Jagger. They come to movement in another way, not as a trained dancer, or not really interested in dance steps. He wanted to research people in trances. Different trances in church and different trances with snakes. So we went over to UCLA and USC, and we viewed a lot of footage of documentaries on that subject. And then he took the ideas, and he physicalized the ideas from these documentary-style films. That's interesting. I, if, if, you had, if I had to guess, I would have guessed that he just made it up on the spot. <laughs> yeah. Um, this part I want to read to you just because I'm curious if you have any um, reaction to this or if you feel a certain way being in the modern music industry. Mm. So Basil adds, when I was making videos, whether it was with Devo, David Byrne, or, or whoever, there wasn't record companies breathing down anybody's neck ah. telling them what to do, what the video should look like. There was no paranoid A&R guy, no crazy dresser that would come in and decide what people should be wearing and put them in shoes that they can't walk in everybody with their own agenda we were all on our own i mean must be nice (laughs) i've never on your side yeah i've never really experienced the thing that she's talking about because i no one has ever cared about anything i've ever made but like i know people is basil a woman tony basil's a woman yeah oh mickey you're so fine yeah did you not have what (laughs) is happening 
Are you okay? <laughs> I yeah. So I've never I've never made anything that anyone has cared about enough for like an A and R person to be there. But I know you know from from just being in the entertainment industry and like working on other projects that are a bit bigger. Yeah, there's always someone there who's only half paying attention, whose job it is to just say the first thing that comes into their heads, even if it completely contradicts the last thing that they said and worry about the brand, right? The, the -hmm. commerce person, as opposed to the art person. And they are not, there's no guarantee that they're going to be any good at their jobs or make any sense. And it is very frustrating. So um, it's nice that they had total autonomy over this. I mean, this basically speaks to the thing that I said while watching the video, which is like, it's amazing that they, that they allowed this. So the music video was made before MTV even came out. So what's the purpose of making a music video? Who was watching them? Where so, were you getting them? So there were a handful of music videos that happened before MTV. And it was like, I don't exactly know where they would be broadcast. I think it would be, they're a little, you know, they were treated a little bit more like commercials. But like Black Sabbath was making weirdo music videos in like the 70s. And I don't know where they would go. Truly, but right. they would like just existed. Maybe you could buy them at shows. I, I honestly have no idea. Yeah, like on VHS. It's just weird to think about now. Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah. So the video was exhibited at the New York Museum of Modern Arts as part of a 1982 exhibition called Performance Video. Well, there you go. So all music videos played at the MoMA. <laughs> This was uh, an exhibit to help explain to parents what their kids were watching on MTV. Oh, no shit. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And it apparently explained how once in a lifetime, the video, quote, expands upon the song's complex interweaving of moods and images, as well as Byrne's interest in African music and percussion. Yeah, definitely feel that. Ultimately, I think this video may have been overshadowed by the live version from the 1983 concert documentary Stop Making Sense, at least in my memory, and seems like maybe yours. I agree. I think that basically everything that they've ever done, it, the the perfect culmination of... Salty talk, and sweet. Mm, Just kidding. The, the perfect culmination of their entire career is Stop Making Sense. I think it's the best concert film ever made. So tell us about it, film teacher. Um, so Stop Making Sense is, is, is a film, is a doc, concert documentary, question mark, uh, made in 1983, as Lindsay mentioned, um, by Jonathan Demme, who mm-hmm. also directed Silence of the Lambs. True. Yeah, so that's, but it's, it's a 1983 concert, the movie came out in 1984, and it's just a great show. There isn't any special no one like flies above the audience no one does any kind of weird camera trickery like in tom waits's big time or something it's just very very good and there's like an interesting kind of question mark over whether it's a true documentary or not because like it's all it is is documenting a show so like is it a documentary is it a concert film is it both is there a difference and it's awesome the int- the 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 coolest part about it is burn along with demi curated the show so that it kind of grows so it starts out with burn on stage with just a guitar and a tape deck playing their biggest hit which is 
psycho killer. And then slowly but surely, more and more and more people go on to the stage until the very end, which I think is Take Me to the River or Burning Down, Burning Down the House. One of those is the last song. Is like two dozen people on stage, two drummers, a percussionist, backup dancers, and yeah, it's great. It's so good. It is great. I have it on Blu-ray. Um, I always like to go to the dance party screenings at Alamo Draft House. I've been to the dance party screenings at the New Beverly Theater, which is Quentin Tarantino's movie theater. Long live dance party screenings. Long live dance party screenings. Yeah, Take Me to the River is the second to last song. They have a, a bunch of fun bits. Um, the one we mentioned this a little earlier is him in the giant suit, which, which is awesome. I, I read somewhere that he wore it to make his head look smaller. I mean, it worked. <laughs> it did work. Um, so he doesn't wear that suit in, in the Once in a Lifetime song, though. And we're going to really quick watch that. No, he doesn't. So Once in a Lifetime is actually before, I'm looking at the track listing right now, before a break. So he like leaves to go put on the big suit. And um, the Tom Tom Club, which is just the other two members of Talking Heads, do a couple of songs while he's like changing. Tina Weymouth and Chris Franz. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's watch it. Yeah, let's watch it. Oh, this has the Hebrew translation. Thank you for being culturally sensitive to my people. You're welcome. So Byrne has always, and by as has always, I mean starting starting now and with his live shows and continuing on till today, kind of blended performance arty sort of per- things with just like a rock concert. I saw David Byrne at Red Rocks and it was the coolest show. I think I sent you a video or two from yeah it, the American had, Utopia like, tour. Yeah, they had no, they had. I don't know, a 10-piece band, but no wires. Right. And they're, like, dancing. I mean, it was the most incredible thing I've ever seen. This is what happens when you allow kind of unproblematic, crazy people to just, like, do their thing. Yeah. Speaking of, I interviewed David Byrne in his hotel room. Did you really? Yeah. And I photographed him for WERS. It was me and Andrew Bruss who worked at ERS with me and David Byrne in a hotel room. Was he cool? He was very weird and awkward, and I felt weird because I was a, sure. a little grad student with a music legend, um, but it was a very cool experience. Oh, and Bruss was like, do not stop taking pictures, whatever you do. <laughs> and so I was just being so obnoxious with the photos. Because who knows what he'll do in a second, <laughs> yeah. right? So he's just as a mad scientist? Is that the deal? We're like, mm, uh, this is what I've always he's thought. He's just Bill Nye. <laughs> yeah. Is this where he does the mirror Look, dance? Look, he's slapping himself in the head. Yeah, this is literally where I got <laughs> this from. I am was being totally honest. When you said you stole it, I thought you meant you like stole the monotonous like no. action. The sm- no, no, <laughs> smacking myself in the face like it's a like it's a skipping record. Now he's just doing the, the jiggle. Yep. I love this. What is the so- what's the song where he does the mirror dance? I'm not sure because they all kind of blend. Yeah, I know it's not girlfriend is better because that's the big suit one. 
I can see what Tony Basil is saying when she says that he is approaching this not as a singer but as an actor because like e- basically everything on his he's like doing so much with his face to bring mm-hmm. you into the moment of the song and I have to imagine that he's not just doing it for the camera but that's what made Demi want to do a concert doc of Talking Heads and he is very expressive and but I think a lot of what he's doing with his face and and body in this song have a lot to do with what we're going to talk about in a little bit which is where he drew inspiration for oh, this cool. track oh my god look what he's doing now yeah he's got a little puppet yeah this is just like one of those perfect songs what's your favorite talking head song I'm so bad at favorites, as you know, obviously. Oh, yeah. I love I uh, Naive Melody. Yeah, Naive Melody is very good. But there are so many. Life After Wartime. Life, right? That was called? Really awesome. Life During Wartime? Life During Wartime is a favorite. Life, Yeah, there's a demo version of Life During Wartime on that uh, Greatest Hits album that we were talking about that I like better than the original, which I don't actually care for all that much. Hmm. I th- yeah, girlfriend is better, and heaven are my two favorite. Girlfriend is better is incredible. Heaven. I agree. Yeah, but this this version especially where they like pick up the pace a little bit. Yeah. Oh, it was filmed at the Pantages. Yes, it was. That's I was about right to tell house. you that. Yeah. Uh, I will stop looking at Wikipedia. Yeah, stop! Now. What are you doing? I'm here to do the show. <laughs> okay. I, well, I got. I just like this. <laughs> So, Lindsay, where was this filmed? Well, Aviv, funny you should ask. So, I personally think we could do an entire episode on this film. Yes, we absolutely There's way too much for me to try and tack on to this one song. Well, let's do like a quick overview of Stop Making Sense. Mm -hmm. Um, I pulled a little (laughs) bit of information here. Here's something from Rolling Stone, our favorite publication. Yeah. (laughs) One that you bought a subscription to because you ran out of free articles. Yeah, they're really rude about it. Uh, We didn't want any of the bullshit former Talking Heads drummer Chris Franz says about Stop Making Sense, the band's influential 1984 concert film. We didn't want the cliches. We didn't want close-ups of people's fingers while they're doing a guitar solo. Sure. We wanted the camera to linger so you could get to know the musicians a little bit. That's great. Yeah. It was December 1983 when the group filmed three shows at Hollywood's Pantages Theater. Oh, that's right near my house. <laughs> Is it? Yeah, I saw Book of Mormon there. I saw Hamilton there. And I saw Hedwig and the Angry Inch there. Okay, I hate you. And the uh, Simon and Garfunkel show. It was like a tribute show. Mm-hmm. So that one's a little less cool. Okay, so the, they filmed these three shows while on tour for Speaking in Tongues. And it found them playing in an extended lineup with extra percussion, keyboards, and guitar. The one thing the band wanted from the movie which we have already said was directed by Jonathan Demme, who would later win an Oscar for Science of the Lambs, was something that would be the complete opposite of anything on MTV at the time. The film had long, drawn-out close-ups on the musicians' faces, it barely showed the audience, and it used dramatic lighting to exaggerate the choreography. The group, which consisted of Franz, vocalist David Byrne, guitarist, keyboardist Jerry Harrison, and bassist Tina Weymouth, financed the movie mostly by itself and by the time stop making sense came out that tenacity had given way to a hit filmgoers were literally dancing in the aisles as the movie played fuck yeah fuck yeah fuck yeah 
Anything else you want to add about this before I move us back towards the original recording of Once in a Lifetime? Um, no, just that I, w- I always long, I, I, I always speculated that there was a, that it wasn't just one show, but it was like a kind of a mix of a bunch of shows because like, there's no way that there's, there's no such thing as like one perfect concert. So whatever, three or four shows that they did kind of all mixed together in terms of camera work, but also like the performances. So uh, yeah, I, I love this movie. I think that it is just so singularly like one thing, which is like a great one great concert that you're watching mm-hmm. that it doesn't need a lot of like flashiness. And I think that that's the thing that the drummer's talking about is like close-ups of huge, you know, when you think of like 80s concerts, you think of like pyrotechnics and Tommy Lee on a on a riser flipping upside down and playing the drums underwater or whatever. And this is true. This is truly just like, watch how good and weird these people are. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. I love it. So with the album remain in light, rather than have David Byrne write everything, the band had taken up a more democratic approach to songwriting and their influences were changing. Just a year before there had been the beginnings of hip hop bass player, Tina Weymouth said it influenced us in a different way to realize that things were shifting. Interesting. And then at the same time, Brian Eno, the band's producer, was really into Afrobeat. Okay, Afrobeat is exactly what it sounds like, right? Afrobeat originated in Nigeria in the late 1960s, and it featured percussion rhythms and elements of jazz and funk with lyrics that were often very political. Hmm. So Eno told NPR, the first time I ever met Talking Heads, I played them a record by Fela Kuti the African-Nigerian musician who'd invented that thing called Afrobeat. I thought that it was just the most exciting music going on at the time. So I gave you a clip of Fela Kuti's 1977 album, No Agreement. Cool. Yeah, I, I'm aware of Fela Kuti, but I cannot, I have not listened to any of his music, really. Or, like, have not been aware of listening to any of his music. Super cool. You like? I do. So, so we have a couple things going on, right? This is a little bit of like our music theory corner. But the keyboard, the the organ or whatever is happening on the keys are just kind of running up and down the pentatonic scale, um, which is a, a bluesy kind of the the proto the scale that the blues scale is based on. Um, or, you know, the, the father of the blues scale. And the drums are, I don't want to say it's polyrhythmic, but it, start, it starts on like the, you know, what feels like will be a driving beat. And then every other measure, it like switches. So it's going back and forth. And it's more following, you have the drums following the keys instead of vice versa, which is kind of cool. And like not something you'd see in rock music, really. Do you hear any specific influences like that Talking Heads talking picked heads. up or might have picked up? I mean, there's a lot of layers, right? And so I think that that's like an Eno thing, right? Is that there's a ton of, of layers and 
each instrument by itself might be considered kind of thin, but as we're piling them all together, it creates like a nice texture. But yeah, I mean, I can see how this, this goes to what Talking Heads were doing, but this is a little more funky. Mm-hmm. So I just jumped six minutes ahead and they're still on the same groove. <laughs> so remember how I said the group was changing its approach to songwriting? Mm -hmm, more democratically. I feel like that might not have jived well with David Byrne. <laughs> <laughs> well, we do know what happened in the end. Spoilers, the band broke up. Spoilers, yeah. Uh, for this record, rather than write everything ahead of time and then hit the studio to record, this time they relied on improv in the studio. Must be nice. To capture their creative process on tape. Which, that takes a certain amount of uh, monetary freedom right. to do, you know? I know, I was thinking about that too. Their favorite parts of these ensemble jams were recorded and looped into finished songs, inadvertently achieving something like modern day sampling sessions. Oh, cool. And that's a very similar to like what's happening in the Fela Kuti stuff where he, the drums are just doing the same thing over and over again in a loop mm -hmm. and like allowing everyone to play around on top of it. Yeah. So in 2000, 21 years ago, NPR wrote, the process of picking a good bit and repeating it is an essential element of rap music. Now, producers call it sampling and looping, and they tend to do it with computers. But to burn, Talking Heads members were human samplers. Mm -hmm. So Tina and Chris had to just be perfect, play the same perfect thing every time. <laughs> yeah. Yikes. According to music vlogger Polyphonic, the group used Izimbra, which is a song from their 1979 album Fear of Music as the starting point for their Remain in Light Jam sessions. So I don't quite understand what that means. So I think it means that they were like, and this is just my interpretation, they wanted to go with like the specific feeling or, you mm -hmm. know, they're like, let's, we love what we did on the Izimbra. Let's try to do more of that and like do these jam sessions. Sure. So I- And so they start by playing Izimbra and then just keep playing until they start doing other stuff. Yeah. Okay. So I sent you that too. Hell yeah. This sounds like nothing but flowers. Oh, not anymore. So cool drum layers, right? Yep. There's like a drum kit and conga drums happening. You've got your your choir singing in not English. I won't even venture a guess to what language that is. Yeah, I'm like really, really, really not a jam band person. But I can see how this, you can draw a line from like this to something like fish. Disco biscuits. I, no. Not, not ever. Disco biscuits is way better than fish. I have I don't know that I've ever heard a disco biscuit song other than like the two that you played for me. <laughs> disco biscuits was at Red Rocks this past weekend. Oh, good. Going to Camp Bisco this year? No. I don't Camp Bisco anymore. I'm too old. Anymore? 
this is also like I can see how this is like a jammy kind of deal because everyone's taking their turn to do a thing, right? Like it was just Tina's turn, and then it'll be Chris's turn in a minute. It's cool. I I clearly have heard this song before, but never really took the time to like dissect it or whatever. Did you ever go to Lizard Lounge in Boston? Mm-hmm. There were like some really good like jazzy nights where. I don't even know who the bands were, and I would just go, and I feel like I would hear music like this. Yeah, sounds sounds about right. Like a mix of rock and funk and soul. Um, also, it's cool. So you pointed out that like David Byrne was interested in like loops and stuff, mm-hmm. which is cool because "Stop Making Sense" starts with him and the tape deck, which is just like an eight o has like an eight o eight beat that is just in a loop, right? So he is kind of experimenting technologically as with, with with the form and function of his music which is cool yeah. his music being the you know the songs that he's known for okay so one of the songs that came out of those i zimbra inspired jam sessions had the working title right start right start and right start laid the groundwork that would eventually become once in a lifetime oh cool so we're gonna listen to that so this is like a like a demo uh-huh. That c- kind of proto once in a lifetime. Okay, so the bass line's the same, drums are the same, but we've got this kind of fun guitar thing on top. Yeah. Oh, there there's our normal guitar part. Mm-hmm. Once in a lifetime was written around Tina's bass line and just fun. Tina aside. Tina is my favorite, and she met David Byrne and Chris Franz at the Rhode Island School of Design in the early 70s, mm-hmm. where she began dating Franz. And Franz and Byrne had a band called The Artistics back then, and Tina was the band's driver. <laughs> okay, sure. And then after they graduated, the three of them moved to New York City together, and Byrne and Franz had trouble finding a bassist that they liked. So Franz asked Tina to do it. And Tina had taught herself to play guitar when she was a teenager, so it's not like this came out of nowhere, but she hadn't played bass, so she started learning bass right then. That's cool. Yeah. I believe that Chris Franz was also involved with the Modern Lovers. Is that right? I don't know. Check it out. Jerry Harrison, who was in the Modern Lovers and then left to to go. Oh, great. But another head. Another another head. I knew that there was somebody. <laughs> so after weeks of jamming, David Byrne and Brian Eno went into the studio to start adding arrangements and lyrics to the music that they'd put down. Okay. And then I'm going to let Polyphonic, the music blogger, tell you this next part. However, when Eno approached the piece, he started counting it differently than the band. The instrumentalists thought the one of the bar fell at the start of the phrase, whereas Eno counted the one as the gap before the phrase began. Oh, Eno's wrong. This created a kind of dissonance and syncopation with his phrasing, and Eno leaned into this. This misheard counting became a key part of the song. It makes the music feel off-kilter and strange. Living in a shotgun shack, and you may find yourself in another part of the world. But the same One, thing that gives two, the song three, its musical four. strength makes it difficult to write. To. I agree. I agree with 
with the musicians, by the way. I think the one is where they say it is. Yeah, let's can we listen to it again actually? Living in a shotgun shop. And you may find yourself one, two, in another three, four. One, two, three, four. One, two, three. So yeah, the so the lyrics of the song of the bar come in on the and of two, which is very, very strange it's that's not how normal songs are sung one two and you may ask yeah that's crazy um yeah uh okay sorry i i wanted to hear it again because i that's super super weird (laughs) even after all that was done they had a really hard time finding lyrics that they felt fit with the track and you know wanted to scrap it okay but david byrne was like no i'm gonna figure this out (laughs) I'm going to figure this the fuck out. Yeah. So Eno had written the call and response melody for the chorus. Like. Yeah. So, you know, where they, it, I heard something there. They were, you know, very normal. Like a lot of people do this just using syllables. And, but because yeah. it had that sort of preacher or sermon quality with the congregation answering back in the water flowing underground part Byrne decided to pull lyrics from televangelist sermons and incorporated their dramatics into his own delivery oh that's cool and you may ask yourself how do i work this and you may ask yourself where is that large automobile and you may tell yourself this is not my beautiful house and you may tell yourself This is not my beautiful wife. Put together, the song creates a trance-like state, capturing the manic monotony of middle-class existence. I have problems with people being like, the manic monotony of middle-class existence. No, it's just kind of a bop guy. Like, it's fine. I actually like the manic monotony of middle-class existence. I actually loved that, and I wrote wrote about that later. But does the verse really give you a sense of the manic monotony of middle-class existence? Yeah, like the days are going by, the water's holding you down. No, 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 no. not that part. <laughs> oh. The, 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 the verse. <laughs> okay. So I, I mentioned the, the lyrics come in on the ver- and of two in the verse. In the chorus, they come in on the and of one, which is your typical syncopation. One. Which is like, that's just regular syncopation mm-hmm. the end of two is fucking crazy <laughs> <laughs> but but that makes sense because Eno wrote that and is lining it up the way that he thinks it should be lined up right right it's like more traditional as opposed to this verse which like kind of scrambled everyone's brain a little bit okay here's burn talking to npr So much of it was taken from the style of radio evangelists. And so I would improvise lines as if I was giving a sermon in that kind of meter, in that kind of hyperventilating style, and then go back and distill that. I love that. So now we know a little bit about how it's made and we're already kind of speculating about what it's about. Let's do it. What is this song about? I literally have never even thought about it. I would, I can, can we, can we look, go over the lyrics? I know the lyric. I mean, I can sing along with the song, but like, I want to. I want to kind of see them in front of me. And you may find yourself living in a shotgun shack in another part of the world, behind the wheel of a large automobile. And you may find yourself in a beautiful house with a beautiful wife. And you may ask yourself, "How did I get here?" 
And you may ask yourself, how do I work this? Where, where is that large automobile? This is not my beautiful house. This is not my beautiful wife. Same as it ever was. Are you skipping around? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I, it feels maybe like a prince and pauper story where like you you are the same person whether you are in a shack with two pennies to rub together or in a mansion and your life could change in an instant from one to the other and back potentially. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. But there is this monotony, right? Same as it ever was. Same as it ever was. Yeah. But there's water at the bottom of the ocean, water dissolving and water removing, remove the water at the bottom of the, that's, I, I have no, no fucking clue. (laughs) So some, Some have suggested that the water represents the flow of time, inevitably pushing us forward. Okay. Let the water, yeah, letting the days go by, let the water hold me down. I get that, right? Like, I I get that connection that people are making. Yeah. And then there's the lyric, um, time isn't holding up, time isn't after us, same as it ever was. Mm -hmm. So I think that means, like, time won't change for us. Right. Yeah. T- time waits for no man. Yeah. Tom waits for no man. Right? <laughs> yeah. Um, but also, like with the time isn't after us, it's like it also doesn't give a fuck about you. Yeah. 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 We are <laughs> right. Exactly. Like we're fighting it, and it does not even know we exist. Yeah. This is. Yeah. I. I think. I think that there is that. Th- that both. Both things about this. Like my interpretation of kind of the paths of our lives that could change at any moment and also that time marches on they like they can they work together you know yeah also into the into the blue again after the money's gone is like you know we're all just gonna fucking die right yeah and money money will go away yeah middle class monotony middle class monotony the madness the manic madness of middle class monotony Mung to you by Mavid Mern. All right, so this is from NPR. Some critics have suggested that Once in a Lifetime is a kind of prescient jab at the excess of the 1980s. Okay. Byrne says they're wrong. Oh. That the lyric is pretty much about what it says it's about. Drowning? <laughs> Here's Byrne. We're largely unconscious, Byrne says. You know, we operate half awake or on autopilot and end up whatever, with a house and family and job and everything else, and we haven't really stopped to ask ourselves, how did I get here? How did I get here? So, yeah, so Polyphonic described as a manic monotony of middle-class existence, which I actually love. I think there's a lot of manic traits in the music and the video. There's a lot of Mm -hmm. monotony in middle-class existence, someone who just quit a corporate job. Including that weird syncopated thing that we were talking about earlier. That is manic. And the bass line and the keyboards repeat, like, continuously. Never change. Yeah, it's both manic and monotonous. Mm -hmm. Okay, 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 (laughs) okay, fair. Byrne told Time Out, maybe I'm fascinated with the middle class because it seems so different from my life, so distant from what I do. I can't imagine living like that. Ouch. Ouch, David. Rude. Ew, David. (laughs) Ew, David. David. I... So I, I have found myself, I just keep saying this is an interesting thing, but it is an interesting thing. I get that tone from a different one of their, I'm, of course, more than one of their songs can have a similar meaning, but I get that tone from a different one of their songs, which is Life During Wartime. Okay. Right? Because Life During Wartime is like, feels like a post-apocalyptic take 
on that same idea. Yeah, let's do a little clip bit of it. Because life, so life during wartime is like post-apocalyptic. He's on the run. He's lived in a brownstone. He's lived in a ghetto. He's lived all over this town. This ain't no party. This ain't no disco. This ain't no fooling around. How do you not like this song? I literally named it as one of my favorites. I'm getting so excited hearing you talking about it, and you're just like, meh. Um, I had I had trouble with it. I had I think I had trouble with like the riff. I wasn't like in love with the riff when I was younger. Okay. I think it's great, and the and the demo version, which is the one that you're listening to right now, positively slaps ten times harder than the final version. Um, but it feels like Byrne has left the excesses of the middle class and the monotony of the middle class behind because society has collapsed, right? And yeah, sure. And looking back on how silly it all was. Mm-hmm. And that feels like a cousin to this this idea that he's talking about in Once in a Lifetime. Yes, yeah. So maybe Once in a Lifetime is the the prequel. And Heaven, because Heaven is a place where nothing ever happens. Because it's not real. I but that I don't think that that I think that that's not his point of view in the song. I think that Heaven is a real place because it's Heaven. Heaven is a place Heaven where nothing nothing ever happens. Mm-hmm. So it's like the things that we all think are positives in our life that we should strive for will just be the most fucking boring things. Yep. And that brings me to what I was going to say, which is that I think my favorite part of this whole song is the, you may say to yourself, my God, what have I done? Mm -hmm. And I love the way he delivers it in Stop Making Sense. So I think this is super relatable. I think that there is a point in everyone's life where you might wake up and realize like, oh, hey, we are all forced into this traditional trajectory that doesn't actually serve the human experience, which includes but is not limited to monogamy, the house with the picket fence, 2.5 kids. I think most people who fall into that trap eventually have that moment. And they did it to themselves, right? What have I done? Maybe they're chained to somebody who they once thought was really exciting, but now it's like they're both the hostage and their captor. Mm-hmm. And they can see every decision in hindsight that led them to where they are now, which is yeah, they- a manic, monotonous hell. So you were talking about tone earlier, and I wanted to ask you, did you feel that the tone was playful or mocking or critical or any of the above? I think playful is is... Definite, like, I think basically everything that they do is playful and not really mocking. I don't know what they would be mocking, right? I don't know. I don't know the the object of their mockery. Yeah, just fun, kind of sarcastic, maybe. Mm-hmm. I pulled this quote from Far Out Magazine. There's a tendency in music to reserve the word masterpiece for only the most earnest of works and taint anything sincere and joyful with the sordid tag of, quote, satire. Mm-hmm. Once in a Lifetime is a raucous work in eviscerating subtlety, but it is hard to imagine anything more singular that is so simultaneously poignant and playful. Poignant and playful. Yeah, I think that that is completely accurate, right? And, and, and the larger point, which is that anything that is sincere is dubbed too sincere and naive, and anything that's dubbed satire is not considered, can be like not real art because it's... <laughs> mean or 
poking fun at something. Mm-hmm. And this, I don't think that this is poking fun at anything. I think it's just kind of poking fun at like life. I think so too. And humans. I wonder if a shotgun shack is like referencing to like a shotgun wedding. Yeah, I was wondering that too. Like you knocked somebody up and now you're living in a shack with them because you're like tied to them. Yeah, I don't know. Cause I've never, literally <laughs> never thought about it before. Oh yeah, I was thinking about that earlier. And it could just be like a double meaning or we could have just made that up in our crazy brains. Potentially, yeah. <laughs> That's what the show's about is like, we're Zeppruder filming every song. <laughs> yes. Okay, so the song has had a rich life in pop culture which I do think is a direct line to the subject matter that's so relatable and a story that is told over mm-hmm. and over again through different forms of media. Yeah. Um, so it was used in the pilot episodes of that 80s show and Numbers. Ooh, that 80s show. <laughs> I know, I've never even seen it. Huge that oh 70s show fan, though. Uh, it was used twice on The Simpsons. Sure, in, th- in the 35 years it's been yeah, on. Yeah, in 2014 and 2016. Oh, recently. It showed up a fair amount in movies. Okay. Hot Tub Time Machine in 2010. It seems as though, especially with like that 80s show and Hot Tub Time Machine, it seems as though it shows up to give a sense of time and place, right? Of like the, of the, the, tr- the we've distilled the truest song from the 80s and it's once in a lifetime. <laughs> yeah. And you know? we're also giving you like some sly commentary or not so sly, basically just hitting mm-hmm. you over the head. With like your middle class existence. <laughs> yeah. So Secret Window 2004. Wow. Rockstar. Great. Uh, wait, Rockstar, the Mark Wahlberg movie? Yeah. 2001, right? Second second time we've referenced right. that on the show. Which is true. And then Alice and the Mart- Martin? Should it be Martian? Excuse- is this a typo? Excuse me? I don't know. What is Alice and the Martin? Alice and Martin. No the. No the, fucker. What is, what is, Alice, <laughs> what is Alice and the, the Martin? No, it's no the. Alice and Martin. Drop the the. Drop the Just the. Just Alice and Martin. It's cleaner. Uh, all right. So... And the live version from Stop Making Sense was used in the opening sequence of the 1986 movie Down and Out in Beverly Hills. Interesting. Which shows a homeless Nick Nolte pushing his grocery cart of possessions around L.A. and doing some dumpster diving with a dog. Hell yeah. Bold of them to do the live version. That means that the live version was so popular that they like just kind of uh, like they were able to use it in another piece of art without people being like upset that there's like crowd noise in the background i i mean i don't is there crowd noise it's from stop making sense yeah i know but there's crowd noise like throughout at the end but to your point but but on the flip side the same year that this movie came out this version of this song was released as a single yeah and it charted at 91 oh wow so higher than 103 yeah so this is this is the perfect juxtaposition, right? You're watching homeless people and also Nick Nolte um, dumpster diving and and pushing their carts of, of trash around, and this these appear to be real unhoused people, like not actors in Skid Row, and we're listening to a song about prosperity and monotony right? and monotony. Okay, so yeah, the that version being in that film allegedly sparked a resurgence in popularity of the song, and it was released as a single again. But what sticks out the most to me in the pop culture realm of this song is the trailer for the 2000 holiday film, 
The Family Man. Family Man. And it was used in the trailer? Yes, which I have teed up for you. Man, I love this movie. What a weird movie to love. It's really good. I'm giving everything I've got to this deal. You're a credit in a world. <laughs> then one day his past Oh, that guy. Kate Reynolds. She was my girlfriend. Is that Mr. Ducksworth? I almost married her. But instead you left her. I took the road less traveled. And fate. What? Him? Me. Gave him a glimpse. What do you need, Jack? I got everything I need. Yeah? You just remember that. You brought this on yourself. At what his life could have been. Kate? Come on, Dad. Get up. It's Christmas. It's Christmas. Jack. Strong coffee. Where's my Ferrari? You got a Ferrari? Just tell me what's happening to me. This is a glimpse. A glimpse of what? This is not my beautiful house. This is very strange because this isn't my house. So this isn't subtext anymore. This is just text. (laughs) You're not really my dad, are you? I don't have time for this. I'm in the middle of a deal. Well, you're working on a new deal now, baby. Good Lord. Do you know why I work here? Because you're the best damn tire guy in the state of New Jersey. You must have needed this every day. There's a great scene in this uh, where she's in the shower singing Burst of Beaten and Burst Beast of Burden. Can I speak words? Burst of <laughs> Beast of I was, Burden. I was just going with it and I was going to Google it afterwards. <laughs> I like cannot talk. There's a great scene in this film too when she's in the shower and she's singing Beast of Burden. Mm-hmm. And it's just so cute. It's like I think when he first realizes like he likes her. That he like loves her. Yeah. yeah. Well, I love this movie. Okay. It's a Christmas movie. It's from the year 2000. You know, uh, it's a really fucking cute. And the guy wakes up in the middle class monotony, but spoilers, he figures out he loves it. Right. It's it's a but modern the, day Scrooge story. Yeah. <laughs> but like the but like the opposite where where. The point of the a Christmas Carol is like to appreciate everything he has, and for this is like to take the road less traveled, literally, and appreciate everything. He appreciate has. what what you could have had. Yeah, yeah. All right. So in 1998, Jay Z sampled the song for "It's All Right." Really, with Memphis Bleak. I've never heard the song oh, before. I sent it to you. <laughs> Oh, it's like half speed. It's interesting. It's fun that that he wanted this to be a sample, right? He fell in love with samples and wanted to create a a record full of samples, and then it itself was sampled. Yeah, that's fun. That is fun. I don't want this. Yeah, we're done. We're done here. Get this guy out of my face. Yeah, fuck that. The last thing that I have for you, which was going to be the surprise ending, but you already knew about it. Sorry. Is I can pretend like I've never heard of it. No, we can't lie to our people. What? <laughs> Kermit the Frog. <laughs> All right. So in 1996, in July. Mm-hmm. 
Kermit appeared on the 109th episode of Muppets Tonight as David Byrne. We're going to hear that now. I loved Muppets Tonight. It was like the reboot of the Muppets show in the 90s. Yes. Super huge fan. Me as well. I've gone out on Muppets more than once in these short eight weeks. It's true. This is our 10th episode. (laughs) Happy 10th episode. Happy 10th episode to you. How did I get here? How did I get here? (laughs) I don't remember this happening when I was a kid. And I would have seen it because I watched this show. Uh Because it was on TGIF. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the when this made its rounds on the internet as like a meme, Kermit in the big suit singing this song, I just thought it was from the original era of The Muppet Show because it kind of like coincided. Like it's closer to the 70s than it is to the 90s. Yeah. You know, but I guess this was like part of its renaissance. Nuns dancing. This may have been the first time I ever heard the song. Was Kermit Really? Yeah, I, I mean, this this was in 98, so it's 96. definitely six, 96? Yeah, it was like July of 96, it was 10 But I thought you said old. you didn't see it at the time. I just don't remember seeing it. Oh, okay. But I watched, I basically, I probably watched every one of these episodes. I was 10 years old. I fucking love the Muppets. <laughs> also, you gotta credit the, this puppeteer for just like nailing this. Yeah, and so this was a couple years after Jim Henson died, so this was a relatively mm-hmm. new puppeteer for the Kermit puppet. I read this on Mental Floss or AV Club. Something. Read this somewhere. They also do his legs. Yeah. Which is fun. It is fun. Yeah. Just going to go out with this Chris Franz quote that he said to NPR in 2000 about the song. Once in a lifetime. If I hear it on the car radio, it still gives me the chills, you know, because it's that good. Good job, Chris Franz. I hate it when hearing musicians talk about songs that they've like grown to hate. Yeah. I'm glad that it's not like I hear it on the radio and I turn it the fuck off. God damn it. (laughs) Yeah. So that's good. I mean, it is very good. It is very good. And like the Talking Heads have such a, and the band Talking Heads (laughs) have such a deep bench of hits that like, it's not, is it in their top five, you think, of biggest hits? I don't know. I wouldn't know how to gauge that because I think that I just have my own working memory of the songs that I love. And, mm-hmm. you know, um, I wasn't old enough to be paying attention to the charts at this time, but I'm sure you can look that up. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, I can look up the... So, this is from Billboard.com. So, to- Talking Heads have zero number one hits. Woof. And only one top 10 hit. Can you name it? Psycho Killer. No. It was Burning Down the House. Nice. So Once in a Lifetime, as you mentioned, peaked at 91, and that was the live version, right? Uh-huh. Psycho Killer peaked at 92. Ooh. So when I mentioned earlier in the show that that was their like biggest hit, I suppose I was wrong. It was their first hit. From top to bottom on Billboard, there's Wild Wild Life, Burning Down the House, and she was Take Me to the River, This Must Be the Place, Naive Melody, Life During Wartime, Psycho Killer, and Once in a Lifetime. Oh, shit. So, yeah. Not what I would have expected. 
Yeah, what are we going out on this week? The X's. Do you know the X's? Mm-mm. I did not like it. So this is a cover by the band The X's, and I'm preparing for it to be bad. Please. Okay. Listeners, gird your loins. Gird your ears. <laughs> what the fuck does that even mean? I don't know. My ears are girded. Gird? Gird, but with a with an eye. <laughs> My gird. Oh, gotta love a music video that starts with like someone switching on a thing. <laughs> When is this from? It's uploaded, uploaded to in, 06. in 06. In 06, yeah. What is the fuck is this? <laughs> right? What in the hot fuck is this? I hate it so much. Wow, this is horrible. <laughs> I didn't even. I gotta, it. I gotta make it through to the chorus. Well, no. Wow. So I, I'll tell you that this is like 2001. Yeah. Era. Is it Nickelback? Like, who does it sound like? It sounds like live. Ah. Uh huh. Like dolphins cry live or lightning crashes. This is like any white person that tries to do a a cover of any song by like a any artist of color and they're like what if we just sucked all of the rhythm out of it this is this, this is hold on is it like mouse rat so remember that all that stuff that i was talking about with the the cool thing where the vocals come in on the and of two mm-hmm. in the this just comes in on the first beat. It comes in on one. There isn't even any normal syncopation in it. It's just, it's just there. <laughs> this is the worst. Okay, we gotta end the show. We gotta end uh, the show. That's that's it for this week. Tune in next week when we talk about another song that hopefully doesn't have just the worst cover in the world associated with it. Um, and in the meantime, you can find us on the internet. We're where? At Lyrics for Lunch on Instagram and Twitter. We all. But what if they want to write a long thing? If you want to write us a long thing, like your laundry list, your grocery list, your favorite songs. Um, the, a, a treatise on why this is the superior version of Once in a Lifetime. <laughs> yes. Please send that to lyricsforlunch at gmail.com. Oh my God, there's a 9-11. There's footage of 9-11. What? And Hitler, oh my Jesus, and Osama bin Laden. What in the fuck is happening with this song? And he's getting hanged. And then you start screaming about 9 11. Because it was there was footage of 9 11 happening during this song. When I saw your face, I thought a spider was coming at you. That was my first thought. Like <gasps> spider. He's hanging himself. Oh God, damn it! Sorry. Uh, find a like the podcast subscribe to the podcast it helps other people find us tell your friends podcasts travel through word of mouth and if you like us what we're doing odds are your friends will too um and tune in next week when we do this again with another song i think i may have said that but i'm just so fucking distracted by this this thing um (laughs) so until next time i'm aviv rubenstein i'm Lindsay tucker saying how did i get here? how did i get here 
My God, what have I done? 